Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You've probably heard this song sung. This is a very uh, uh, prominent poem in literature. It's been referred to many times. The birds actually uh, recorded this back in the 60s. But what's going on in this chapter is critically important for you laying a theological foundation to build on for the rest of your life. Let me set these uh, verses in our minds just by reading them. Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth. And a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what has been planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down. A time to build up. A time to weep. And a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything beautiful. Appropriate, good in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good during one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. Father, bless the reading of Your Word and now its explanation. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody has one of those places. I'm talking about that place that desperately needs your attention. But the thought of dealing with it gives new commitment to the word procrastination. Where is your place? You say, what are you talking about? How about a junk drawer? You know that there's a lot of stuff in there and you want to deal with it, but not today. A closet? You ever looked in your closet lately and thought, yeah, I need to deal with that, but not today? Maybe it's your whole room. You just keep closing the door and sleeping in there and just hoping nothing grows in between. A box. You sealed it up a long time ago intending to go through it and sort it all out, but you haven't. A garage. That's what it is for me. These boxes that sit over in the corner just begging me to go through them. Maybe, girls, it's a purse. You're really not sure what's in there. The apple cores from three years ago. The trunk of your car. I opened up the trunk of a car of a friend of mine who had the audacity to pick me up at the airport. And he opened his trunk and then closed it real quick. There may be dead bodies in there for all I know. It was absolutely indescribably junky. These are places that accumulate material that you just don't want to deal with right now. But you have every intention of getting to it someday. Why do we have these places? Why do these places kind of grow in our lives? Because we don't want to face the reality of what's really there. And we don't want to deal with what's there if we found out what was in there. We don't want to make any decisions about the things that we find. Well, this evening, what we're going to do is deal with one of those theological boxes that's just like that. You kind of, you kind of say, I'm going to deal with that someday, but not today. I know I need to look in there and rummage around and see what there is I can build on and what there is I need to throw out and see what's correctable and what needs to be built upon and see what I need to have adjusted in my life and see what I need to submit to. And 
But it's a subject that all of us talk about. Few of us actually study. This is something my, my guess is most of you have procrastinated for years to deal with honestly and appropriately. What is it? The sovereignty of God. Oh, we talk about it and we throw the term around, but what does it really mean? If you're new to the Christian faith or maybe you're visiting with us, let me just explain what that big word sovereignty means. We've heard that word usually in reference to the kings in England. Their sovereign rule, their sovereign reign, meaning that in the realm that the king has oversight, he has absolute and complete control and say. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, that's what we're talking about with his realm, which is the entire earth. His oversight, his rule, he is the king of kings. Meaning, if he's the king, he's the sovereign ruler over the earth. About 1000 BC, King Solomon posed and asked the most serious of all questions when he dared to ask and answer it with his unmatched wisdom. What is the meaning of life? How do we deal with life? That's what the whole book is about. And get this, you're going to find out on the last day of camp. Let me just give you a preview. In chapter 12, he says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is a sermon. With many parts. It's really intended to be read and grasped in one simple sitting. But think about this. Most people avoid Ecclesiastes because they think it's too heady, too philosophical, top shelf. I need to live on the bottom shelf where all the cookies are. Solomon, though, intended for you to be sitting on the front row of this sermon called Ecclesiastes. Such that when he concludes the whole thing, he actually addresses the young people and says, Remember your creator implication they were there they were listening this isn't for the philosophers this is for the student ministries in fact there's so much in this book that's intended for you to settle now before you get older because the older you get the harder it is to settle these things one of them as a foundation is the sovereignty of god the sovereign rule of god Chapter 1 of this book, he lays out the problem. The world and nature seems like an endless cycle of the same things over and over and over. People looking for satisfaction and not finding it. I didn't highlight this verse this morning, but look back over in chapter 1, verse 8. This is kind of his summary that he uh, picks up and explains through the end of chapter 2. Verse 8, chapter 1. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell how wearisome they are. Tell it. The eye is not satisfied with the seeing, nor is the ear filled with the hearing. What's the point? No matter what I do, I don't get satisfied. No matter what I hear, I don't get satisfied. No matter what I get, I don't get satisfied. It brings me simple pleasure in the moment, but it doesn't last. So he turns in chapter 2 to experiment with pleasure. Maybe I can find something. Maybe something will prove to be satisfying. Pleasure, materialism, education, all is vanity, vanity, vanity. There for a moment, gone. Cotton candy. But he does come to some very positive and encouraging insights by the time he finishes chapter 2. He basically says, in this world of vanities, it's still better to be smart than dumb, moral than immoral. Even all. Even after all, you're going to end up in a coffin, so do the best while you're here. Solomon is screaming at us that life and the universe without God is suicide. If you try to understand the universe without God, you're only going to understand it according to your own intuition. And that's only as good as the next person's. Nothing is more than an effort to numb ourselves from the meaninglessness of life without God and to try to avoid the fear of death. The book of Hebrews says that every person is a slave to the fear of death. So, just introduce God into the system, right? And everything goes, goes uh, peachy and wonderful and great. Problems go. Everything works out. Just get God and life works out, right? Wrong. 
If you're going to deal with Solomon's wisdom, you have to understand that premise. He's not saying come to God and life gets all better. He's saying life may get good, life may get bad, but whether it's good or bad, it won't make sense without God. There's a youth devotional that I saw a few years ago that really captures it. It says, if God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? It's a good question, actually. I mean, he's so good, he loves me, he cares about me. Why is it so hard for me to deal with life? If I come to Christ, if I give my life to the Lord, if I submit my life to the gospel this week, isn't life going to be great? Well, maybe and maybe not. Truth is, you'll probably experience greater trials because not only are you fighting the trial in your life, you're fighting your own flesh to respond rightly in the midst of a trial. You say, oh, that's, that's convincing, Rick. Thanks for preaching tonight. The most crucial question in the maturing of any Christian, and especially of you as a senior hire, is how you're going to deal with life through the context of God's sovereign rule. Just because you express a belief in God doesn't make your world and your life void of all vanity. Your problems don't leave. You don't get exempt from tragedy and injustice, harm, injury, conflict, war, sickness, death. Still keeps coming, right? So this wise preacher helps us navigate life when it doesn't seem like anyone has a hold of the steering wheel. How? By referring us to God's sovereignty. Chapter 3 is... Quite a different change from chapters 1 and 2. He refers to God 11 times in 22 verses. He's shown us in the last two chapters the despair of the atheist and the drama of the materialist and the hedonist. Now he wrestles with the problem of the theist. You say, what does that mean? As Christians, we're theists. We believe in God. He says, you know what, that has a whole world of problems to sort out with intellectually. And he dives right into it in chapter 3. What is God's sovereignty? We have to understand that before we jump in. God's sovereignty is very important to understand. It simply means that God is in control. Listen to Psalm 115, verse 3. God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth and the seas and all the deeps. How about Lamentations chapter 3, verse 38, 37 and 38. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? That word ill means tragedy, calamity, all the disasters. Is God really in charge of that? The answer is if he's not... Who is? Theologians deal with this in a variety of ways. They, some call themselves pantheist. Absorbs God into everything. Deist, which cuts God out from everything. Dualist, which divides control between God and another power. Indeterminist, which says God has no control at all. Determinist, which means that God has had a kind of, of responsibility that makes us, makes him responsible for evil others say that it's the doctrine of chance which denies controlling uh, power of god at all others say it's the doctrine of fate which means that god has no goodness the bible doesn't use any of those terms it just says god is king overall and does whatever he will all right take a deep breath and i want to take you on an absolute rapid fire jet boat cruise over the 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 sweet, sweet currents of God's sovereignty. Just listen for a second. God rules over natural forces in Psalm 147, verse 8. He rules over wild animals in Job 38 to 41. He rules over all the happenings in the world, great and small, from thunderstorms, Job 37, the plagues, Exodus uh, 7, to even the death of a sparrow, Matthew 10, 29. The fall of a a dice in Proverbs 16, 33. He's over physical life in men and animals. He gives life and he, doesn't, and he takes it away in Genesis, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Ezekiel, Daniel. 
He's over health and sickness in Deuteronomy 7. Prosperity and evil in Amos 3, 6. God is over everything. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, if he's over everything, then I sin and he's over me. Isn't God responsible for sin? Can't we blame the whole evil of the world on God? The answer is unequivocally no. Because even in God's providence, he has allowed choices to be made that move from submission to him to submission to evil. Why? I don't know, but I can tell you this. Part of it is we would never see that God is forgiving, merciful, and gracious unless there was sin in the world. He's not responsible, but he uses even that to demonstrate his own character and his glory. Simply put, God appoints all things without touching, causing, or being stained by sin. He does everything just in time. Now, I mean that in two ways. Just in time, perfect timing. God never turns his head away from the movie and misses a scene. And he also does it just, as in righteous, just in time. So we're going to go through this chapter, and it's going to be kind of a whirlwind tour. But we're going to look and find eight insights into God's sovereignty. You say, that's a lot of points. Well, that's how many are in here. So eight insights into God's sovereignty. Let's just look at God's sovereignty, pull the car over, get out and enjoy the scenery of God's sovereignty and not make it like that drunk drawer that we say, we'll deal with that someday. Let's deal with it tonight, okay? Better that you deal with it as a 15, 16, 17, 8-year-old than you become 35 and tragedy happens and you say, where is God now? Let's find him. Eight insights into God's sovereignty. Number one, this is verses 1 to 8. This is the longest point, just to let you know. What God has appointed is unavoidable. What God has appointed as an expression of his sovereign rule is unavoidable. Let's go through verses 1 to 8 and just kind of pick them apart. There is an appointed time for everything. Now stop right there. Appointed is a passive uh, verb. It's appointed. Something, someone has done the appointing. Who is that here? It's God. God has appointed a time for everything. And there's a time for every event under heaven. This is Solomon's thesis. All of life is ordained by God. All of life. I know that brings up a whole lot of questions, but we'll deal with those later in the week. Let's just take it as a premise for now. To illustrate this, Solomon lists 14 opposing brackets that show us that God appoints the time for everything. There's a little phrase, under the sun. That means this side of creation, after the fall, and this side of heaven, the world in which we live. That's what we have under the sun. Like what, Solomon? A time to give birth and a time to die. God is sovereign over birth. God is sovereign over death. God knew the day you would be born before you were ever conceived. And you know what? Listen. God has a day circled on his calendar. And he knows when you will die. No amount of eating your supplements and going to the gym is going to make you live one day longer than he's appointed. Now, you might have a healthier life till then. I'm all for exercising and taking vitamins. But you're not going to live any longer than God wants you to live. God never says, whoops, never. It's probably on the border of appropriate to tell you this, but I have trouble watching any kind of movie or any kind of TV show because of the effects of hydration. Think about that for a moment. I end up having to go to the bathroom. And it's frustrating. I'm like, well, I, uh, okay, uh, can you pause that? or something? Uh, uh, I'm always afraid I'm going to miss something. God never, ever misses anything. You want me to freak you out a little bit? God right now looking right at you. And he has nothing else in his peripheral. And his full sight is on you. Fully on you. You're saying, what, what about her? No, it's on you. 
and her at the same time. He's God. He can do that. From your birth till your death, he knows everything about it. He's appointed your birth. He's appointed your death. When I was talking to my friend this morning who was uh, going over to see this couple I was speaking to you about, he's made a simple observation. He says, God knew about this yesterday morning before there was even any pain. He knew about it. We can find comfort in the fact that he's not surprised. Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 says God makes alive and God brings to death. He says there's a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. There's a time to work and a time to rework. There's a time to plant things and then you toil it up and you stir up the soil and you plant again. Meaning that there's seasons that he's orchestrated. Summer always follows spring and precedes fall. Fall always comes after summer and goes before winter. Those seasons happen all the time. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. Now there are several words in the Hebrew for kill. This is not the one used in the Ten Commandments for unlawful killing. The idea here is that when sickness or plague comes, God decides who lives and God decides who dies. That should give comfort, not threat. It's deeply comforting for me to know that God knows the day of my death. I'm not looking forward to dying, but I'm looking forward to being dead. The dying part freaks me out a little bit. But can you imagine? I was just thinking of Jen before the session. and I hate to be giddy about this, but she's such a joyful, bubbly, wonderful girl. To think that she did close her eyes with a headache. And she may open them tonight and see Jesus. There isn't a better thought. A more hopeful thought. A time to tear down and a time to build up. Talking specifically about buildings. A time to weep and a time to laugh. That goes in couplet with the next one. A time to mourn and a time to dance. This is a reference to Jewish festivals. This has nothing to do with break dancing, swing dancing, or country line dancing. It says there's a time to be happy and a time to be sad. When my sons took their first steps, I was very happy. When they fall and broken things and gotten stitches, I'm sad. God has appointed those times. He's given us a range of emotions with which to experience life. You know why? Get this. He has that range of emotions and we're made in His image. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. If my sons are listening to this, this is not talking about throwing rocks at each other. Tour guides will tell you about Israel. I was uh, there just last year and it's true that there's an old legend that God gave uh, a bunch of angels in the creation time Uh, stones to distribute all over the world, but the angel with the most stones tripped and they all landed in Israel. The issue is clearing a field for planting and destroying someone's field by putting rocks in the garden. You put rocks from one place to another, you're displacing them. It's just dealing with the agriculture. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. There are times that you see each other and you just hug and you're great. It's good to see each other. There are other times we need to work things out. And you say, we're not going to embrace until we've worked these things out. God has made life to work like that. A time to search and a time to give up what is lost. I, I had a nickname with my college roommates. They used to call me Sock Shy. Because every time I did the laundry, I was a sock shy. It's like, where is it? Where is the? Where's my other sock? Well, there's a time to search and a time to give up is lost. I searched a long time for a lot of socks and I gave up. He's saying, look, if you lose something, look for it. But after a while, move on. Or get a metal detector. Time to keep and a time to throw away. Every husband has wanted this to be his wife's life verse. 
time to keep and a time to throw away. Keep the good stuff. I have a theory. If there's something that's in a box and you haven't looked at it in a month, you don't need it. Throw it away. Time to tear apart and time to sew together. You know what that's talking about? Clothes. You wear your clothes, you have to sew them up. Time to be silent and a time to speak. Boy, I'm trying to teach my sons that. Time to speak and a time to be silent. God's appointed those times. Time to love, a time to hate. Define contextually, this is hating sin, God's enemies, etc. Not hating people who you have a grudge against. A time for war and a time for peace. Because God rules the nations, he's the director, dictator of all times of war and peace. And the point is that we have little, actually no control over the things and the times that God has ordained. He's ordained it all. I was 19 years old. Between my, um, actually 18 years old, between my uh, uh, senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. And I read a book by by J.I. Packer on God's sovereignty. It freaked me out. I was in the middle of that book reading one day. I was expecting a package in the mail. The mailman came, and I remember seeing that he put the package, I was looking out the window, put the package in the the mailbox. and And so I went out to get it. And I've been reading all that morning on God's sovereignty. He's in control of everything. He knows our choices, but we're still responsible. And just wrestling with that and banging my brains out on it. And I remember walking out. I kid you not. I'm not telling you a lie. Walking out to the mailbox thinking, God's in control. He knows everything. He knows everything. I'm stopped. You thought I was going to go out there, didn't you? But Oh, he knew I'd stop, so I better go. No, no. He stood. It took me 30 minutes to get to the mailbox. Trying to sort out. Does he, does he think I'm going to open it? But what if I do? What if I don't? He, if you haven't had those moments, you, well, maybe you won't, but some of you will, where you just wrestle with this. Can I encourage you? Wrestling is good. Wrestling with God's truth is good. You know why? God wants you to experience His glory. His glory is the emanation of His nature. You know what glory is? It has two words in the Hebrew and in the Greek. It's kavod in the Hebrew. And it means weight, substance. He wants you to think about him with such intensity that the glory of who he is, the weight and substance, actually begins to crush you into a little bitty infinitesimal mind when you say, he's greater than me, I don't get it. That's glorifying to God. When you just, (laughs) you got this brain that you think, yeah, I get God, and then he's bigger than your brain. Some of you think that God is infinity in an itty bitty living space. That's not how God is. He doesn't live in your brain and can put your brain as the parameters and just fit in there. Think about God where you just say, you just have a headache. That's good. That's glorifying to God. The other word is doxa for glory in the New Testament. It means light. It's the brilliance of God. His weight and his brilliance. You ever looked at the sun? I hope not long. You ever looked at the sun just for a moment? If you just glance at the sun and then close your eyes, what do you see? You see the sun. You know why? The intensity of the light is so powerful, it literally paralyzes the nerves on your retina until they have a chance to respond. They just can't. It's just too overwhelming for them. Revelation 1 says Jesus is brighter than the sun. So to experience his gravity, to experience his brilliance, to be paralyzed in the retina of your soul by his radiance. Wrestle with the greatness of God and do it now. Read theology. Read hard books. Ask your pastor, what can I read that will make God bigger than the box I have him in in my brain? You'll be blessed by it. You'll be... It'll be hard, but it'll be harder later. Wrestle with God and His sovereignty now. What, is a God, what God has appointed is unavail, unavoidable, so what? So respond to life as you should respond to God. My wife is such a practical theologian. Now, I have all these degrees, and I teach in seminary, and I'm a pastor at a large church, and I've got my theology all in a row, and it's pretty nice pretty sharp in my own estimation we had a situation this weekend come up and what i had hoped would happen didn't happen i was frustrated and i expressed my frustration quite vehemently i can't believe this and 
And my wife just simply said, do you believe that God was in control of all that? Why did you just say that? I was on a rant and enjoying it. It matters. It matters. You know why I think most bad things happen? To remind us to look to God. I stumped my toe pretty, pretty significantly the other day, pulling the door open. You would think I pulled that door open a hundred times that I would know clearance issues, but I didn't. Bam! And I remember thinking, why did this happen, God? And I almost heard him say, so that you would look up. Sometimes God does things just to say, do you remember that I'm in control and that it matters that I'm in control? Number two, these move a little quicker. What God has appointed is just and right. Just, not fair. Just and right. Look at verse 9 and 10. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. What is he talking about? Notice that it's God who's given this task. What is this task? The task is the living of life. And the working is living out life and working at life. The reason life is seen negatively as a task is because God made it that way after and because of the fall in Genesis. Think about, think about Adam. I mean, you want to melt your brain? Think about Adam. Adam's made perfect gets this righteous fox named Eve walking around naked as could be in the garden perfect temperature fellowship with God walking with God then for some reason they happened upon a tree that God said leave alone and the woman took the apple fruit pomegranate, I've heard a thousand descriptions of what it was, the fruit, and ate it. Now, I've heard people say, where was Adam when that happened? You know where he was? He was standing right next to her. How do you know that, Rick? Because the text says so. She took and ate and gave it to the man with her. And he ate too. He had everything he needed in the garden. Can you imagine that? After that, what did God say to the man? Now, in order to feed yourself and clothe yourself, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. We're still doing that. But it's just. And it's right. We must remember that dealing with life and all of its difficulties is better than not living at all. God has given us a task called live life. And we're living it outside the garden and before heaven. Think about his sovereignty as you're doing that. Number three. What God has appointed. This is great news. What God has appointed, number three, is good. What God has appointed is good. He has made everything appropriate, the New American Standard says, in his time. What does the ESV say there? Everything what? In verse 11. He's made everything what in his time? Beautiful. The, the word is tov. It means good, beautiful, attractive, appropriate, lovely. He's made everything beautiful and good in its time. What does that mean? This is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. You know Romans 8.28? For we know that God causes all things to work together for good... For those who love him are called according to his purpose. This is the Old Testament version of that. He's made all things, everything appropriate, good in its time. Only God can bring beauty and good and meaning out of any and every event in life. Otherwise, there's an unquenchable doom, hopelessness, and sadness that would pervade. Can I just be really bluntly practical about this? There was this girl I was dating in uh, college. I, th- I thought she was it. 
I, I thought we were going to get married. I, I mean, I was whooped. And, um, and dumber than a coot. I, I mean, I was stupid too. We, um, this was the summer before I was going to come out to go to seminary. Actually, it was the January before I did. Uh, so uh, I was just a few months from leaving and thought, I actually had an engagement ring in on layaway in uh, the um, Cage Jewelers. And we came home from church one night. One, uh, it was afternoon, Sunday afternoon. And I had a roommate there, and um, we're having some lunch. And she said, we walked in, we're going to have lunch. She says, Rick, can I talk to you? I said, sure. She said, can we go back to your room? Now, that was kind of, we didn't do that because we were trying to be above reproach, but I could tell something was bothering her. So we went back, closed the door. She sat on the bed, and she says, um, we got to stop dating. What? But we used the L word, and I told you I was going to, we're going to, we're talking about marriage in July and going to seminary. And she says, I, I just can't live this life anymore. I've been dating your friend Alan for two months behind your back. Capital D for devastating. Devastated. Now, I, I know that Christian's supposed to have his life. I was a youth pastor at the time. Everything was supposed to be right and... I went three days, and I, it wasn't that I didn't eat. I couldn't eat. I, I was just like, first of all, it hurt. And second, I was thought, how was I so dumb? <laughs> how did you not see that? What are you doing? That? Oh, I got plans. Okay, I'll call you tomorrow. Just didn't see it. Guys, it wiped me out. And I remember, I'm sorry, girls, I wrote off the feminine gender from the face of the planet and said, I am going to be in the butter, president of the Butter Club, bachelors until the rapture. I'm the president. No one will. <laughs> it all came together for me, though, in a Taco Bell parking lot. I, I was starving after about three days. I said, this is ridiculous. I've got to get on with life. I went to Taco Bell, got two bean burritos, no onions, and, and mild pulled over in the parking lot, and was just, I was going to eat them in the parking lot, and I'm telling you, it hit me like Niagara Falls. I was a sloppy mess. I mean, you talk about, I was slinging snot all over that car. I was just, whoa, just terrible. It was Niagara Falls. And I had it out, and I went from sad to basically I took God by the collar, and I put him down in my car, and I let him have it. I said, God, I'm trying to serve you. I'm a pastor. I'm working three jobs. And I love this girl. What are you doing? I can't believe what you're doing to me. Six months later, I moved to California. And I went to junior high staff meeting. And there was this hottie named Kim. I said, who was that girl? That other, I don't even remember her. God makes all things appropriate in their time. If things don't work out for you, it's not good for you. Psalm 78, no good, no, Psalm 68, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Meaning, if he's withholding something from you, guess what? It's not good for you. When you understand life from his sovereignty, man, it makes sense. Everything appropriate. In his time. Even if we don't see the beauty and the good in the moment, trust God that you'll see it later and you might not see it until heaven. Number four, what God has appointed is beyond understanding. This follows from number three, what God has appointed is beyond understanding. And that helps us because you don't always see the good. Verse 11 in the middle. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What does that mean? Let's break it apart. Eternity in their heart. There is in all of us an unquenchable desire to ask this question. Why? Why? Man is a natural-born philosopher. Get this. You're all natural-born theologians. You think theology, whether you think, think you do or not. This is another way of saying that God has made man to be 
to be curious. We have the ability and desire to ask the heaviest questions of life, but no ability to answer them without God. Man longs for meaning, but God will not let him have it unless man comes to him for it. This desire is a blessing hidden in the curse. Inside of all of you is this little voice, this, Augustine called it a void that can only be filled by God. You know what usually hits you? Can we be honest? When you lay down at night, isn't that where your mind shifts into theological philosopher mode? Get real serious, think things. Sometimes you stay up thinking. We need to train ourselves to actually ask those questions all throughout the day. It's a good thing to press, press life so hard that we see its meaninglessness without God. He's appointed everything, and what he's appointed is beyond understanding. It's, it's eternity in our heart. You're not going to be able to figure this out, but you can begin to figure God out. Trust him. Even if you don't understand, trust him. You know, I didn't trust God as, as well as I should when that girl dumped me like a bad habit. I didn't trust God very. I'm going to be honest with you. I was a mess. I, I was a mess, mess. And then he had Kim in his mind. And, and if he could have come down and sat in that car with me, I think he would have said, Rick, Kim's on the other end of this thing. And she's much better for you and much better for glorifying me with you than this other girl would have been. Even if you don't understand, trust that he's in control. You may not ever understand. I used to have a dog, German Shepherd. It would be in the, in the spring, it would heat up the asphalt. The sun would heat up the asphalt. It would get cool in the evening. And this dog would go out and lay in the street. We were kind of over a, a rise, over a hill. I was always afraid the dog would get hit, just laying out there, taking a nap, bloom, bloom, that'd be it. So I kept going out and getting him out of the street, and he wouldn't get it. So I, would, I used the old size 7 pretty effectively and, and just, get out! And I know that dog kept looking at me like, why are you kicking me? This is warm. I like this. He didn't understand I was trying to save your life. Didn't understand. How much of what God does do we not understand? And there's, there's the difference between a dog's intellect and mine is minuscule compared to our intellect and God's. Number five. We're getting into some good news. Ready? What God has appointed is gracious. What God has appointed is gracious. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I wanted so bad to scream this verse out this morning, but I knew we would come to it tonight. Solomon is not saying, okay, life should be just a bowl of prunes. And that's all you get. He's saying, it's gracious. Enjoy life. Enjoy life. If you're eating, if you're drinking, whatever you're doing in your labor, it's the gift of God. I was watching you guys play some of those crazy games today. And the thought occurred to me, it is, you are in the best chapter of your life. It will never, ever be like this again. It'll be better in some respects. It'll be harder in some respects. This is good. Enjoy all of this camp for God's glory. Enjoy each other for God's glory. Enjoy your small group. God is gracious to give you what you don't deserve. Rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. This doesn't mean moral good. There's another word for that. You know what this means? Rejoice and enjoy good things. Like a fountain pen. Doze your knife and a deer apart, but 
gracious. Number six, what God has appointed is authoritative. What God has appointed in his sovereignty is authoritative. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. And guess what? There's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. Have you ever noticed that um, there's not a suggestion box in church to give God any new ideas? None of your churches in the back have a suggestion box for God. Maybe God would like to know how to run its creation. A little better, you can give him some suggestions. This is humble submission to God's authority and sovereignty. Do you believe that God is really in control? Look at the first two words of verse 14. What are they? I, what does it say in the ESV? Perceive. Sorry about the ESV, it missed it. It's I know. I'm confident, literally. I know that everything God does will remain forever. Confidence in God's sovereignty. It's authoritative. Can't be added to. Can't be taken away from. So what? Submit to God with a soft heart. Submit to God with a soft heart. Number seven. What God has appointed is awesome. What God has appointed is awesome. In the middle of verse 14, for God has so worked that men should fear him. Awesome. We use the word awesome too much. I've I've tried to teach my boys about the word awesome and it's backfired on me. We used to use the word awesome too much in our family, so we can't use it anymore because nothing is awesome but God. So if anybody says, that's awesome, we'll know only God is awesome. Just this week, I'll say, man, that's awesome. Actually, Dad, only God is awesome. Right. I was going to say that, but you beat me to it. That Testing you. That's what I was doing. I was testing you. Awesome means full of awe. You know what the better word is? You know what the Puritan word was? Awful. Awful. God is awful. Now, not, we, we've made that a negative word. Look it up in the dictionary. The second and third definitions say awful. Full of awe and inspiring. He's awful. It's a positive, theologically. You're to fear him. What does it mean to fear God? Well, I've had a study of that over the years, and um, I've heard people say what well, means reverential respect. And it, you look up every time, yare in the Hebrew, it just means to be afraid. To be afraid of God. Now, how can we be afraid of God, love God, and experience God in a good way all at the same time? Real simple. You know what God is capable of. If you know what God is capable of and the threat that he really is, you'll fear him. We fear only what is a threat to us. Do you perceive God as a threat? You should. Luke chapter 12, don't fear him who can destroy just the body. That's the enemy, that's the devil. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. I tell you, fear him. Who's that? That's God. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. God's sovereignty is awesome in the truest sense. Treat him as the threat he really is and respect him deeply. Number eight. What God has appointed is unchangeable. What God has appointed is unchangeable. Verse 15, that which is has already been. And that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. What kind of double speak is that? Well, think about what he's saying. God uses what is past as proof that we should acknowledge his sovereign rule. We can no more change God's plan than we can change the past. And the best way to know and acknowledge God's sovereignty is to feed it with scriptural accounts of his sovereignty. 
God seeks what has passed by. It means He's before, during, and after every event. He's totally in it, and it's unchangeable. Now I know you're thinking, well, what about my responsibility? What about my choices? What about all that? Welcome to Theology 101. God intends for you to wrestle with these things, not put them out of your mind. What I find amazing is one of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon, a British preacher of a hundred years ago, said this. Just listen very carefully, okay? There is no attribute more comforting to God's children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that God's sovereignty has ordained their affliction. That sovereignty overrules them. That sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master and his control over all creation. The kingship of God and over all his works by his own hands. The throne of God and his right to sit upon it. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. No truth of which they've made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of Almighty, infinite God. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow Him to be on His uh, uh, throne, to, uh, on His chair, only to dispense alms and bestow bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth and bear the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends to his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God, and his right to do as he wills to, uh, to his own, and to dispose his creatures as he thinks he will, without consulting them in the matter, then we hiss and moan. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us and to God and His throne, who they don't love. But it is God on the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon His throne alone who we can trust. You really have two choices. Either God is in control or he's not. And if he's not, there's no hope. Nowhere does the sovereign control of God come into play more than at the cross. Isaiah 53 said it pleased him to crush him. The cross of Jesus Christ to pay for sins wasn't an accident. Wasn't a sad story. He ordained even that to give us Wicked children who are born with a stiff arm in his face. The opportunity to have our sins taken away by himself. The only way to appreciate, understand, embrace, love, study, and enjoy God's sovereignty is if you've done the embracing of his son by repenting of your sin, believing in the gospel, and giving your life and faith to Christ. If you want to know what that means and you're not real clear on it, when we go to small groups, ask that question. There's no embarrassment in that. Nobody in here is going to say, wow, that's a stupid question. We would love for you to ask it now, even if you feel embarrassed, then to postpone it and sacrifice eternity. God is sovereign and he's made all things good in his time. Let's thank that God.